tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie uh, welcome back to Tip Today with myself, Trudy Waters. Now, as you know, we're in the, the final countdown to the All-Ireland Hurling Final this weekend. Liam Sheedy's men will be joined by tens of thousands of Tip fans as they make the pilgrimage to Croke Park on Sunday with the hopes of returning with Liam McCarthy. Out of that, we're celebrating the blue and gold on the show all this week and we want to see how far you will go as a Tip supporter splashing the colours. So have you decked out the house? Have you painted the cat or the car or the goldfish yourself, your child? Send us a photo on WhatsApp to 083-311-3311. We're putting the photos up on Facebook. We'll pick the best one. And then on, on Friday, it'll be the winner and they'll get a €250 Euro DIY voucher. That's thanks to Topline Cleary's Hardware, Carrick Insure, your winning team for DIY Home and Garden. And if that wasn't enough, we have a runner-up prize of two Tipperary jerseys and that's thanks to the four-star Anor Hotel and Leisure Centre on the Dublin Road in Thurles. And as I can tell you, there's a uh, some great uh, pictures coming in today from Thurlis and from Ballingarry and from Nina. So please keep those pictures coming up there. They're absolutely wonderful. Well, it's that time of the week again, and I'm delighted to be joined in studio by, I won't call you our legal legal, I don't think you like me calling me that, but uh, with uh, John Lynch of John Lynch Solicitors. Uh, good morning, John. Good morning. I must go back and paint my office. I'll you must do. You must I could do. Paint the mouse or something. <laughs> <laughs> succession. I believe we're going to be discussing yes, succession. Yes, yes. I mean, this is a kind of popular enough topic that we've covered on a couple of occasions, and I'm kind of using it as a kind of an excuse to maybe review some of the materials that we have on it because we produce these booklets for clients mm-hmm. with, that kind of set out the basic kind of guidelines and what you should look for and how you should address it and how you should approach it and what are the kind of pitfalls, the trips, slips and falls that are involved in succession, you know. But I mean, it's something that we all have to deal with in one way or another. You know, how are you going to, you know, if you're running a small business, if you're running, if you have a farm, you know, how are you going to deal with the whole area of succession? And there's a couple of kind of tips that you start with, that I usually start with when I'm talking to the client. I say to them, well, look, you know, you know, the ultimate is to try and plan it now and not later. Try and look to the future as opposed to trying to deal with it as, a, as, it, as it arises and then yeah. run into the problems that are almost intractable when they happen, you know. So, I mean, the first thing is that obviously when you're looking at things like income going forward, you're looking at pensions. And if you're looking at a pension, you say to yourself, well, OK, if something were to happen to me, how do I deal with the pension? And that's where you look at widows and what they call the widows and orphans element of the pension. So in other words, who should benefit if something happens to you? So, you know, if you're receiving a pension, who might continue to receive it? If you aren't in receipt of the pension, who might get the benefit of the pension if something happens to you? And that comes into the whole area of nomination, you know, that you actually can, under certain pension schemes, nominate a beneficiary. So if you nominate a beneficiary, and one of the advantages of nominating a beneficiary is that if you do do that, then you're in a situation that that person doesn't have to go about probating your estate, doesn't have to go about doing anything effectively because they're the nominated beneficiary under the will, or sorry, under the insurance policy. So again, you don't have to deal with it under the will and you don't have to go to the, they don't have to go to the cost of dealing with it under the will. The other nomination that comes to mind that I often speak to people about as well is that if you've got a couple of bob in the credit union, you can nominate 
the credit union account to someone. And again, that saves the cost and also the hassle sometimes and the delay that comes with trying to do the paperwork after somebody passes. And a nominated uh, you know, account is a very way of dealing with it. And it's one particular thing that's covered under the credit union situation. The next one then that you kind of come to then is your bank accounts. You know, is there some way you can deal with your bank accounts so that you don't have to, if you like, try and pre-plan or rather pre-plan rather than post-plan what you're going to do. And if you've got a bank account, often the easiest way to deal with that is to deal with it by way of a joint account. Mm. So if you have a joint account, uh, usually, usually, and I say usually because it's it's often a matter of debate and can be a matter of debate as to whether a joint account is a true joint account or not. In other words, was it just opened as a kind of convenience for somebody mm-hmm. so that if you have a situation, for example, if you get to a stage where you're getting your pension, it comes into your joint account and you might have one of the family members that might be looking after you on a day by day basis, you might open a joint account to allow them to have access, access so that to the they can get yeah. Yeah. access to the funds. So obviously you have to be clear when you're setting up the joint account that in fact it's a joint account that you want the other named individual to benefit in the event of something happening to you. So assuming that you kind of take that precaution and ensure and if in fact that is are your intentions uh, that they're clearly uh, the case they're clearly pointed out if you know what I mean that those are your intentions so that's your kind of banking hands now the other situation that you kind of look at then is that if you have assets in joint names and this is one that often kind of comes up for consideration that let's say husband and wife or say a business take the two kind of I was going to say extremes, but that's probably not the right way of defining it. But if you take the uh, relationship that's based on marriage or, uh, you know, the relationship that's based on business uh, as a comparison, well, if you're buying assets as a couple, you normally put them into joint ownership. And if you're buying them as business partners, you'll also put them into joint Joint ownership. ownership. But what you've got to be careful about is that if you put them into joint ownership as business partners and you put them into what they call a joint tenancy, and this is getting a little bit technical, there are two types of joint ownership. There's what we call joint tenancy and there's tenancy in common. Now, joint ownership is the one that you more often see in the case of a husband and wife or partner, civil partners. And in that situation, what happens if, let's say, let's just make it easy and say a husband, one, two people. If one of the parties dies, then the pr- principle of what they call jus accrescendi, I just love saying that because I learned a little bit of Latin and I like showing off every now and then, but the principle is that the survivor takes all. Mm-hmm. So in other words, automatically, without you having to do anything at all, the family home, for example, will automatically go to the other, the surviving partner. This is under succession. Well, this is well, under this law. Is under law, yeah. But I mean, if you die in testate. Okay, but it's irrelevant. irrelevant. It doesn't matter okay. whether you've made a, sorry, a will or not. Sorry, yeah, excuse me, if, whether you died or exactly. will. Apologies. I haven't even. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad. I'm glad you're listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
full marks, even though leaving search results are out today. I wish all the leaving cert kids, I hope they all do well. Absolutely. But anyway, um, so I'll give you an A. Oh, thanks in, very in, much. In <laughs> succession. <laughs> but this, these are the pre-will the pre things that I'm yeah. talking about. So in that situation, if it's jointly held and as joint tenants, we'll go to the survivors. So, you know, if like when I came back to town first years and years and years ago, I... Uh, I uh, hope my folks aren't listening to me uh, this morning. But w- when I arrived back, I don't think it was a huge secret 40 years ago that most properties were actually held in the sole name of the husband. Mm-hmm. So it was quite common at that point in time, 40 years ago, to actually immediately check to see who owned the house, the family home, because it was very commonly the case that it was held by the husband rather than held by the husband and wife jointly. So it was a kind of... A, when they introduced the Succession Act in Ireland, uh, sorry, when they introduced the Family Home Protection Act in Ireland, they introduced a mechanism whereby you could automatically transfer the family home into, into the, the husband and wife jointly with, a, with minimal cost. And I remember when I came back to town first, I thought, there's a real area now that I obviously have to start publicising to people mm-hmm. because they may not know it. And I would say, I would safely say that I'd say maybe nine out of ten people who came into me, it was held in the name of the husband because that was historically the way that you would do it. Those days are long gone now. Absolutely. But it's now, thankfully, right. so you <laughs> are rightfully and thankfully. But so I, w- I would have transferred a lot of houses into family homes, into joint names, and they would be held jointly. Now, if I had two business partners coming into me, I wouldn't transfer it into, into their joint names as mm-hmm. joint tenants. I would transfer it into their names as j- jointly, but as tenants in common. And the reason and what that is really is that they, if you like, both hold the property in common, but each of them have a share in the property which they own and can transfer on by way of succession to somebody else. Okay. So, the, so the, the key thing is that if your whole property is a tenant in common, it doesn't automatically get dealt with unless you deal with it under the will. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what I'm talking about here is all the things that you should do or could do mm-hmm. without having to sit down and go and go about making a will. Mm -hmm. Because if you make a will, obviously making a will and if you die and you have assets, there is only one way that those assets can be dealt with. And you have to take out what we call a grant of probate or administration. So in other words, you have to go through a legal mechanism. And that legal mechanism is quite stressful for people who are in uh, bereavement situation. There are the bereavement situation. Yeah. And is it like, is it, is, does literally everything close down from bank accounts, etc., once that's it goes into problem. probate? Yeah, that's the problem. You see, that things shut down. And what I'm saying to people, and what I say to people before you start into that whole process of thinking about the will. So we haven't even got to the point where I'm talking to you about your will and about making your will. I'm saying here are the things that you might consider doing without actually going to the point of making a will. And the final thing that you'd, you'd, you'd say to people as well is that, you know, maybe the time to affect the transfer of the assets, maybe the time to actually look at transferring the asset to little Johnny or little Mary is actually at that point in time. So in other words, instead of waiting to do it in future or at some stage in the future, now may be the time to consider doing it. Mm-hmm. And 
to do that, then you've got to look at a couple of other factors that have to come into play. Because obviously, if the asset has a mortgage on it, or if the, if there's money borrowed on the assets, in those circumstances, you have to you have to ensure and make sure that you get the consent of the lender. So in other words, you can't just automatically transfer an asset that is that has a mortgage there's an outstanding loan on it exactly there's a loan on it you can't just affect a transfer of that so therefore you'd obviously have to deal with the whole issue of dealing with the bank and dealing with the lender whoever the lender is the other thing that you have to be very careful about or careful about maybe very careful might be too strong but you have to be careful to ensure that if you're transferring assets that you bear in mind that you must be solvent. What I mean by that is that you're transferring assets without, let's say, getting full value for them or not getting any value for them at all. So let's say you decide to transfer an asset to a child or to a favourite nephew or whatever and you are not getting full whack for it or you're not getting any consideration for it at all or any money for it at all. Under those circumstances, you have to make sure that you're solvent at the time and the reason for that is fairly practical in the history of the last number of years in terms of the amount of people who are insolvent and have are in a situation where they're negative equity and or they owe considerable monies. In those situations, you may in fact have a situation that that transaction could be reversed because at the time of doing the transaction, you're actually insolvent. Mm-hmm. And there is, a, there is a power or a legal mechanism whereby that transaction can be reversed subsequently. So you have to be very careful when you're doing that. So, for example, if you get an asset from somebody, uh, if you're in the lucky position that you do get an, act, an asset, and they often say don't look the gift horse in the mouth, but the, the reality is of it is with, you have to yeah. check the horse out because yeah. the, un, the unfortunate reality of it is... The nag could be lame. Well, exactly. <laughs> if, the, if the horse is a nag, you may, you may be in difficulty because the transaction could be reversed. So they're all the kind of precursors to the next stage, which is looking at actually the actual... Uh, yeah, no, no, go and I say it. And I'm, gonna, I'm looking at horse the clock and I'm <laughs> going to ask you, can you hold that yes, thought, please? Will I take it? Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Uh, welcome back to Tip Today. Well, I'm still joined by our, um, our solicitor, John Lynch, and we were talking about uh, succession and I suppose we move to the next step. Will yes, yes. I mean, once you've done the preamble to it and you've looked at the nominations and you've looked at the pension side and you've looked at whether you should affect a transfer or not, you then look, look to the next kind of scenario, which is how do I actually do the succession planning or what's involved in succession planning? I mean, the very first thing, and I'll take the example of farmers, for example. If you look at farmers, what you're talking about there is what reliefs are available to you because when you're transferring an asset you're looking at a situation where there's a double-sided edge to it in that well there's a triple-sided edge to it because there's also trans there's a three kind of taxes that you should look at there's your capital gains tax on one side there's your capital acquisitions tax on the other side or gift tax on the other side and then in the middle of it there's stamp duty 
And so it's a kind of like one of those, I don't know what, you, how you, a mace of some sort. So the first one is the capital gains tax. Now, I'm not professing to be an expert in capital gains tax. It's an area that as, as solicitors we deal with because of the fact that it primarily is involved in the transfer of assets. Mm. And as solicitors, you're invariably involved in the transfer of assets. And assets obviously include things such in, in our realm, it's kind of land transfers that you're looking at. And in the case of farms, it's, it's farm transfers that you're you're looking at as well but one of the things that you've got to kind of consider is that retirement relief is kind of the primary one that you're talking about when you're in the area of transferring an asset like a farm so you're looking at that when you hit 55 being 55 and 65 there's a kind of a window there that you can transfer an asset from a capital gains point of view that there isn't a liability for capital gains tax and also there's a window there uh, on the other side of it in terms of, of gift tax so or rather you know if you're getting it for less Less than value, because you see, people often think, "Well, you know, what? What if I transfer? Okay, let's say it's worth, just say, give the number, say, a hundred thousand. We transferred for seventy. Would that be all right?" Well, the reality of that is that market value is the determinator, determinator. and it's not. It's not just what you transferred for. Now, one of the things that I kind of didn't t- talk about which I'm going to double back now, if you don't mind, because one of the things that I didn't talk about when you're talking about pre-planning for succession, because pre-planning for succession isn't all about wills and isn't all about affecting transfers. Because if you're doing succession, you've got to, you've also got to look at the situation where you might have somebody who's going to succeed you who you want to bring in at an earlier stage than when you're getting out, if you know what I mean. So succession planning is more than just kind of hitting a point in time and say, right now, bang, I'm going to transfer everything. So when you're looking at that, you've got to look at the situation where you're looking at either a partnership agreement or a shareholders agreement if you're dealing with a company. So invariably, what you do while you're in business, you have to think about doing when you're looking to get out of business. Because if you're, like, let's say you're in my situation, I have a partner, and in that situation, a business partner, I also have a life partner as well, just in case she's listening. But when you're looking at a situation where you're, you're, managing your business part of managing your business is managing your exit from that business and managing your exit from the business is all about a partnership agreement and or a shareholders agreement and if you don't do those i mean i i really remember and it, it sticks in my mind very much when i started business first there were three individuals who came to me and they were looking to set, set up a business and we were chatting about it and i said well okay now you do realize that, okay we can set up a company you can operate under the company status or you can set up partnership and you can operate under the partnership status but the, sa- the, the same principles apply you're trying to put into writing, writing what you want to happen while you're running the business profits on the business how you manage the business but also how you get out of the business as in you can get out in a number of ways you can either get out by walking away from the business and or you can get out by leaving it because you've retired or you can pass on and die in which case and in this particular situation I said well right okay they decided to go down the avenue of the limited liability company because obviously if you go down the road of the limited liability company by definition it's limited liability so they were looking for that cover that protection and one of the things I said to them 
on the Friday, and this is exaggerating it a little bit, but on the Friday I said, well, okay, lads, we'll, we bought an off-the-shelf company because like all these things, I wanted to do it in a hurry. So we bought what I call an off-the-shelf company. So I didn't go through the long mechanism of choosing the name, validating the name, going through the memo and articles, discussing it. You would literally buy a, a pro forma kind of already formed the company. company. Yeah. You change the you change the directors, change the shareholders and away you go kind of thing mm-hmm. because they wanted to do it quickly. And under those circumstances, one of the things that you have to make sure about uh, is that you do a shareholders agreement, which is, if you like, you have, and again, what a getting sidetracked too much when you have a shareholders agreement or you have a partnership agreement it's kind of working out the nitty gritty of your working relationship with each other as the owners of the business and in this particular case where you buy an off the shelf company you have what we call the kind of rules and regulations of the company and they're kind of you know they're they're kind of the bog standard ones are what we call the default ones. They're the ones that kind of are. You, you, it's a little bit. What would you? What, how would you compare it? You know, you compare it to buying something, which let's say it's a some something at home for that you're using that everybody uses, but you want to kind of customize it to your own to use, your use yeah. without getting too technical or getting too over technical about the whole thing but in the, in this particular instance I had said to them well look we need to do agreement we discussed it we did succession rights how would things happen etc etc drafted the agreement gave them the draft sent them off with it said okay meet you back next week they didn't make the Monday didn't make the Tuesday didn't make the Wednesday they were busy etc etc rang again on Friday and on the following Monday one of the one of the parties passed away and there were no succession rights, there was no issues. So, you know, therein lies the importance of ensuring that you put in in terms, you know, what are what will happen if. And the other pre ones, which probably means that we're not going to get to the whole will succession we're side of things. Today, we will next week, I promise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll do. But the other thing that, that that if you like, that is commonly becoming very kind of current and very popular and relevant is the whole issue of either prenups or cohabitation agreements. And again, this is forward planning mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Succession, maybe not succession planning, but succession planning as in succession control. So if you've got a prenup agreement, which are becoming, I mean, surprisingly popular as a concept, if you know what I mean, in Ireland. And I think, in fact, when you talk about farmers, I think the IFA have been pressing that they get kind of statutory recognition. Which they don't currently have. Which they don't currently have, exactly. At the moment, you're literally just offering the opinion that the courts may Mm -hmm. take it into account and may look at it, but you have the overriding kind of kind of criteria that a court has to apply which is that there must be proper provision for all the parties in the event of a breakup which kind of if you like throws a little bit of a, a kind of spanner in the works of having a prenup and it kind of means that if the prenup isn't fair you're going to have a situation that the courts could overturn it. Because it won't be worth the paper it's written on effectively well, in this country. It, yeah, you know? Some of it may not yeah, be worth the paper yeah. it's written on, but if it's if it's entirely unfair and it doesn't make proper provision, you can be fairly sure it won't stand, it won't, stand it won't hold water. Yeah. But 
but in those areas where it is drafting away that it is a reasonable one, you know, if you have a short duration of marriage or whatever, or if there was a death that arises out of the prenup, in those situations, the courts are unlikely to, 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 you know, say that proper provision hasn't been made in yeah. those types of cir- circumstances. So there's a kind of a crystal ball element to it. But having said that, they are kind of one of the mechanisms that you should be looking at in terms of succession, in terms of protecting assets, or in terms of the succession of assets that you don't want the succession to be in some way, you know, corrupted is the wrong word, but in some way complicated by that. The other one, by the way, which is again becoming quite popular and should be looked at, is the whole cohabitation scenario. Because, you know, we've had the Cohabitation Act, which allows for legislation to enter into what we call a cohabitation agreement. And there's still a considerable number of people out there that aren't, going down the road of, of a marriage and or, you know, that formalising yeah, okay. the legal relationship. So under those circumstances, cohabitation agreements are becoming quite popular for, for that very reason, for the same reason that I keep saying that in order to in some way control outcome, you've got to have it put down in terms of an agreement to do it. So my final thing, which I will do next week, is that having done all of those things and looked at all of those preliminary ones that you should be looking at before you actually get into, well, OK, right, I've, I've now ticked all the various boxes. Now what am I looking at? Now the final two that you should be looking at, in my view, is your will, number one, and your EPA enduring power of attorney, number two. Mm-hmm. There, one deals with the situation that we all know i.e. that someday we're not going to be here. So your will is going to deal with that. And the enduring power of attorney deals with the other situation that's becoming quite popular and also popular for a very practical reason, i.e. that we're all living longer now. So the likelihood of reaching a point in your life that you're no longer able to manage your affairs in a way that's beneficial or arguably beneficial to you that in those circumstances, an enduring power of attorney is where you nominate two people to take on that responsibility. So effectively, you, you've now, if you like, one, two, three, step one, do all the primary things, look at those. Step two, have a look at your enduring power of attorney and see who you're going to nominate to deal with that. And enduring power of attorney, without preempting it has quite a lot of elements to it. I mean, it's, again, it's not the, you remember I was talking to you about the shelf company, you buy, you take it yeah, off the shelf. Yeah, you need yeah. to be careful that the APA isn't just pulled off the shelf and fill in the blanks. And likewise, the third part of the the equation, as far as I'm concerned in terms of dealing with succession, is the whole area of the will and making the will. And I say that if you deal with all the other ones and look at all the other ones, then when you're looking at your will, it makes it quite a very much a simpler process to deal with and a more effective process. Perfect. Listen, John, I'm going to leave it there. Now, we have questions uh-huh. coming in. What I'm going to do is next week, I think we're going to start with those questions and then we'll get on to the other stuff because there's quite a bit there. Uh, so thank you very much, John Lynch. No of problem. Solicitors. Thank you. It's Bye-bye. now 10.35. The great Frankie Gavin is next. <laughs>